This season of The Ones Who Succeed is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. You can take classes in social media marketing, video editing, entrepreneurship, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, or just explore a new passion, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today. Because Skillshare is offering the ones who succeed listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes all for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com succeed. Again, that's Skillshare.com succeed. That link is how they know we, the ones who succeed, send you to start your first two months now. That link is also in the description of this podcast. And a special thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring the show. Welcome back to The Ones Who Succeed. I'm your host, Campbell Barron. Okay, so here's what's up. Today's guest is Chris Saka, the former venture capitalist and shark on ABC's Shark Tank. So I've been a fan of Chris for a while, and when I decided to create the show, he was actually one of the earlier guests I reached out to. And to my surprise, he got back right away and told me that he was traveling in the summer and that I should follow up in the fall. At that point, I was super excited and marked October 1st in my calendar which I figured was the closest acceptable date to what is considered the fall. So when October 1st came around, I followed up. And followed up again, and again, and again, and again. And after months of persistence, he replied. And we booked a time to meet in LA in mid-December. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Chris, let me just preface this by saying that he is a big deal. He started his tech career in Silicon Valley and ended up hustling from company to company. This led him to find a job at Google, and he worked his way up the ranks and left the company to pursue investing in startups full-time. He's invested in companies including Twitter. He actually owned 18% of Twitter when they IPO'd. Other companies include Instagram, Uber, and Slack. Chris also appeared on ABC's hit reality show Shark Tank as a panelist and a judge. But perhaps what I found most interesting about Chris and his journey as a successful entrepreneur and VC thus far has to do with the fact that in April of 2017, he decided to quit his life as a VC and leave it all behind. I chatted with Chris for two hours, and because of that, I've split this episode into two parts. So for the next two weeks, you'll hear about Chris's journey to becoming a VC and why he left it all behind. I hope you're as excited as I am for this one. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Chris Saka. My name is Campbell Barron, and I'm a 15-year-old entrepreneur and content creator. And you are listening to my podcast, The Ones Who Succeed, where each week I meet with inspiring individuals and talk to them about their journey to success. I was deeply in debt, more than almost anyone can ever be in their life, let alone at 25 with nothing to show for it, Um, and uh, with no job prospects at all. And so I even did... I found a voiceover opportunity on like Craigslist or one of those sites. So I did like a voiceover for an audiobook. Hear their stories, experiences, and firsthand what it took to succeed in their field. Why am I doing this? Because I want to learn from the ones who succeed. And you can too. 
Okay, so like I mentioned before, Chris and I met in L.A., specifically Santa Monica, California, in December of 2018. But interestingly enough, my conversation actually starts with Chris complimenting my podcast setup. Dude, at this point, you are one of the ones who succeed. I guess. You've done, it sounds like you've taped like over a dozen of these interviews now. And I have to say, for everyone watching, you have the most pro setup I've <laughs> seen. You. And I've taped a lot of podcasts, and they can be pretty janky. I appreciate no it. No one's paying attention to audio levels. Nobody's coming with such high-rolling video equipment. You've got it dialed in. Thank you. I appreciate I, that you're bringing your A-game. I appreciate it. Um, so let's just let's go back in time. Let's just start off at the very, very beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Lockport, New York, just outside mm. of Buffalo. Yeah. Um, it was a great little town. Most of the people in my town uh, worked at the auto plant. They yeah. making uh, parts for General Motors cars and stuff like that. So uh, it was it was pretty um, it was pretty traditional American, modest sized houses, and uh, and you know public schools, and nobody was too fancy. And I love it. I feel really grateful to grow up there. How would someone describe you at, let's say, 15? What were you like as a kid? Oh, I was a total geek. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I could, I was capable of playing some sports, and I, was, I had friends and stuff, but, you know, my passions were reading and math mm-hmm. and science. I was a big science nerd. I also liked art and writing, so I kind of had that stuff going, too. Uh, but mostly, like, if you asked, um, you know, the girls in, in like elementary school or junior high, I was an adorable geek. <laughs> an adorable geek. Well, I, it was funny because I wasn't an antisocial geek, yeah. right? Like, I was totally nerdy stuff, but I, you know, but I was friendly. I had lots of friends. So, but yeah, I, I mean, starting in like seventh grade, I started going to university at night for math. Really? So I would, um, I would either... You know, my parents would drive me around, I might get in a carpool, and I would literally go to the University of Buffalo and take math classes. So I was, um, I was also into computers a little bit back then. They were much different than today. Um, but so that's why I say I was pretty geeky. So you were an academic? Yeah. I mean, I think I had a healthy, um, a healthy lack of respect for school sometimes. I think that relying just upon school for an education can be a mistake. But I feel grateful that my education went way beyond the walls of the school and that my parents didn't just rely upon that eight to three, um, you know, textbook based education to prepare us for life ahead. I think there's so much more to a person than arithmetic. I also really liked uh, the idea of making money. So Mm. um, both I had side hustles. I always was trying to start little businesses I sold suckers uh, in school, uh, much to the chagrin of the administration. Um, but I also worked. So for my parents, it was really important that my brother and I got jobs early on. So, mm-hmm. um, so I worked in a party rental supply store. I worked for a, construct, a commercial construction company. Um, I, you know, I, I had kind of gritty jobs early yeah. on, um, both to teach us the importance of a of, of really working mm-hmm. and how most people made a living um, and build some you know work ethic as well as to make us grateful for whatever was going to be ahead right to know that when we went to college it wasn't accidental it was hopefully you know bust your you know 
really invest all the effort to make sure that um, you know you you take advantage of that experience. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I heard that you kind of in the summers you do these things called sweet and sour summers. Yeah. Right. Can you just talk a little about that? Just yeah, that was my parents. Uh, they just my, my parents both grew up middle class and had always, always, always had jobs, um, mm-hmm. starting at young ages. Uh, and so, so yeah, so the sweet and sour summer was first half of the summer was usually a gritty, nasty job. Um, you know, really, really, um, getting dirty, having, having bosses that would push you around a little bit. I yeah. worked alongside guys who were on parole and probation and uh it was real you know working for very little money mm-hmm. um but learning lessons along the way i remember once my boss gave me a raise just above minimum wage and he took me out to the equipment yard and was like this is how somebody makes minimum wage walks and he kind of showed somebody working at a at walking at a regular pace he's like this is how somebody makes 15 cents more than minimum wage walks and he like hustles down the and so there, there's so many lessons I got from that job that I completely think about in, in the way I work and who I interact with today. Um, but at the same time, my parents would give us an opportunity to go do something um, very cool and intellectually challenging. So at a, I think at age 12 or so, I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, and got to shadow a family friend of ours who was a lobbyist yeah. for consulting engineers. It's not necessarily the job you would pick out of thin air, but that was incredible. I was, I had one blazer, one tie. I learned to tie it that summer, and we would go to Congress and like talk to members of Congress about why these certain bills were important. And they actually, I was a pretty good writer, so they let me write the leave behinds, the one pagers we would leave with those Congress people, yeah. and um, that was uh, that was an absolutely unforgettable experience that would shape us. Um, and so. I did similar work. I would have one of these really hard jobs, and then I would work at the district attorney's office uh, and, and stuff like that. So I think I would come out of those summers with this deep appreciation for really getting up, getting your hands dirty, working nasty hours, working in um, really trying conditions for tough bosses, mm-hmm. and then uh, at the same time advancing my perspectives. I think I had as like what potential career paths could be or why. Um, why those academics could really be important. Why, why do you think, like, why do you think making money at a young age was important to you? I mean, that's a good question. Uh, we didn't grow up with much. And um, um, I just felt like it wasn't that money would solve problems because I, I was very fortunate. I grew up without those obvious problems. Um, but I just, I did think it could create opportunities. But for me, I just felt like I was drawn to that idea of business. I was, I was exposed to friends of our family who owned their own businesses, and I loved the conversations with them. I would just sit and listen. Um, and I mean, and, I, and by that I mean the guy I worked for who literally rented party equipment and did construct, commercial construction. Another guy who had like a tool and die factory who just mm-hmm. printed out metal parts. Mm-hmm. That guy fascinated me. Uh, another, my godfather um, ran, uh, had massive apple orchards and then ran a produce wholesaling business. So he was kind of farmer, kind of a business person. I could listen to him forever. Um, yeah. And so I was just drawn to those kinds of conversations. The, the questions they made about hiring and about risk and stuff like that really, really resonated with me. So I think that was all part of it. I, I wanted to be a master of my own destiny, I think. So Chris's interest in entrepreneurship led him to trade commodities at a very young age. But what are commodities? If you don't already know, 
commodities for people who don't know are like you can buy coffee beans and you're buying and selling large amounts of coffee beans predicting yeah. that they'll be worth more in the future uh literally orange juice um hogs uh as well as pork bellies what you make bacon with i mean there are all these different different types of cattle uh and so you're, you know, these are the things we use to power the economy and our diets, et cetera. But you can actually, like the way you invest in stocks, they're like options on the future price of these things. So my boss used to trade this stuff in the top, like, attic of the building we worked in. He had a satellite link to the Chicago Board of Trade. It's going to sound hilarious to the internet generation, but it had a 45-second delay, <laughs> and that was pretty cool. Uh, nobody else had that kind of, you know, immediacy on a trade wow. yeah that was that was really cool that was almost real time for a 45 second delay imagine if you know you're stock trading these days yeah. 45 seconds it's crazy um but but he also knew i was a super math geek and mm-hmm. so he would he started bringing me up there to review charts with him like stochastics and stuff like that uh and then at one point he put three thousand dollars in an account it's pretty me like it's funny I, I don't even think about how how cool this was. Um, he put $3,000 in an account and he said, whatever you lose, trade anything you want within this, you know, within my account, whatever you lose, I'll cover whatever you make. I'll split the upside with you. So I guess that was the first time I ever had carried interest. Mm-hmm. Um, my first trade was live hogs. I'd done a bunch of analysis and I remember specifically after splitting the profits with him, I made $171. Downstairs, I was making something like four bucks an hour. And upstairs, I made $171. And it occurred to me in that moment, I want to be working upstairs. And so I think for the rest of my life, I was chasing something like that. How do you become the owner? How do you, how do you get capitalized? How do you get the leverage? Uh, and, you know, it's fun. You ask good questions. I, it's fun Thank to reflect you. back on that. So you, you went on to go to law school. Yeah, well, I, I mean, first I went, so I was, going, I was doing all this math stuff, right? And mm-hmm. I kind of burned out on it after a little while. Math, math was getting very tough. And, you know, having a well-rounded life is super important. Um, I think that gets lost sometimes in this, in this age where kids get rushed through school. The great thing about my parents is there was no pressure to succeed. There was no expectation of that. Um, I went to a public school. You know, they didn't rush me into some fancy private academy or anything like that. Instead, it was just, if Chris has this hunger and ambition, let's figure out how to feed it. And so that, I, I'm eternally grateful for them scraping together the resources to make sure like we had an Apple II Plus computer so I could learn to code and hack a little bit and stuff like that. So for post-secondary, Chris ended up in the School of Foreign Service and studied in countries including Ecuador, Spain, and Ireland. The School of Foreign Service is like spy training school. It's like they, more people go from there into CIA and State Department than anywhere else. I didn't take that path. If I did, I couldn't tell you. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't take that path at all. Um, but I felt like it was just an incredible, incredible um, diverse training. Yeah. And then I, I have to point out one thing. Like the, the most important mentor I ever had was a professor at, um, at Georgetown named Otto Hentz. I signed up for a five-year MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Otto was the first one who told me, learn now, train later. So learn now, meaning this is your one big chance to learn with a capital L. Learn for the sake of learning. Uh, 
and that no matter what job you take later, they'll train you. So if you want to go join an investment bank, they'll teach you all the accounting and stuff that's actually not that hard for bright people. Like they'll train you with a capital T, they'll put you through their whole program. Mm -hmm. But this is your chance to read the great books, see the world, study languages, debate. You know, one of my favorite classes ever, ever was death, dying, and the healing arts. Like that's not something you get to take when you're working with Goldman Sachs, yeah. right? So just uh, to, to dive into art and music and stay up late and talk to the other kids there with these incredibly diverse worlds to volunteer in service of others. And so, so I credit that undergrad, you know, I credit the way my parents raised me to have all that breadth of exposure beyond the walls of my school and how that translated ultimately into my undergrad with shaping so much of who I am. Now, law school was a fluke. Yeah. I came back from studying abroad. Um, I had all these student loans that I had to pay back, like tens of thousands of dollars of student loans. And back then the interest rates were like eight and 9%. It was nasty. Mm -hmm. um, and I had kind of not paid attention to the interviewing cycle for all those banking and consulting jobs in retrospect, thank God. Um, so I just applied to law school because my dad was a lawyer. My grandfather had been a lawyer. I really admired the work they did and how it allowed them to help other people. So it was just kind of obvious for me to go to law school. But from the moment I got to law school, I was like, you know what, I'm different. I don't really want to do this for a living. And by then, you know, law school for me wasn't a transformative experience like it was for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I saw it as a tool to get into the business world. You know, so many business people want you to have your MBA. To get an MBA, you got to have a few years working experience. What I noticed was that out in Silicon Valley, um, which I felt like was the most uh, socially mobile, economically mobile environment there were where nobody asked your age, you could just do something. What I noticed was you could go right from undergrad to law school to suddenly be in the conversation in Silicon Valley without having to log any more years. And mm -hmm. So that for me was get this law degree and get out to Silicon Valley. When we return, how Chris Saka got that law degree, moved to Silicon Valley, and accumulated over $2 million of debt. This is The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsor. This season of The Ones Who Succeed is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. You can take classes in social media marketing, video editing, entrepreneurship, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, or just explore a new passion, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today, because Skillshare is offering the first 250 people who click the link in the description two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes all for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com succeed. Again, that's Skillshare.com succeed to start your first two months now. And a special thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring this season. Welcome back to The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron. So the year is 2001, and Chris was working at Fenwick & West, a premier Silicon Valley law firm. But then, when the dot-com bubble burst and the tech economy slowed down... I was laid off, um, along with almost everyone in my graduating class. Uh, you know, the, the dot-com downturn had set in, 
And Silicon Valley is becoming a ghost town. Like everyone I knew had to move back home with their parents. There were just no jobs left. Um, in fact, I was laid off four days before September 11th happened. And so for four days, I was pretty optimistic that I'd be able to get a job. Mm-hmm. And I had some of my clients who liked me and were talking to me about joining them. And then September 11th happens, and it was just game over for everybody. And I don't want to begin to compare that, you know, like what I experienced to the actual suffering of people involved in that event. But just the rippling effect, it just, it yeah. just froze the economy, um, and tech was dead. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go home and move in with my parents. I love them. I'm so grateful for them. But that to me was like, what can I do to stay in the game? Um, so I say it's important because um, I owed a bunch of money, by the way. I'd been day trading before that, and I took on way too much risk. And I, I actually owed $2.125 million in my own name. So that's just a small detail. So to repeat that small detail, Chris owed over $2 million of debt. A huge setback for anyone, especially a recently unemployed college grad. With that being said, instead of quitting altogether and leaving the valley, Chris stayed and hustled to make ends meet. I didn't want to give up, though. I didn't want to declare bankruptcy. I just I wanted to see what I could do. So talk about hustle. I did everything I could possibly do for money. I was taking legal jobs off of Craigslist. There was a company that just started back then called Elance that I think is still around today. It was like a freelance marketplace. I mean, Elance kind of saved me. I was doing like 50 and a hundred dollar gigs off of Elance uh-huh. to That's so try and make rent and make little payments on this debt. I owed, uh, this trading debt. I, um, I was walking around Silicon Valley with a business card that said Chris Saka and, um, you know, and people would be like, Oh, you sound like a good kid. Things will go well for you. And I'm like, you don't understand. I need to make rent like Friday. So I can't just like, hey, things will turn out in a couple of years. Um, so I actually created a, a company name out of nowhere. I called it the Salinger Group. It just sounded really memorable and familiar. And um, Crystal, who's now my wife, yeah. who's always my best friend, designed the business card and the website for me. Um, it's the same colors we use today at lowercase. It was that orange and gray. Um, we do that as like a shout out to the Salinger Group back in the day. But... Um, the website said pretty much a lot of nothing. I, I let the domain lapse a long time ago, but you can actually find the website on the Wayback Machine still. Yeah. And you'll notice it just says it's, it's, it's like a lot of nothing. It's just fluff. Um, but, and, I, and I had three groups. I had like venture, uh, like consulting and media, hopefully trying to keep myself open to any potential job I could ever get. <laughs> and then I would walk with this business card in those same events and just hustle. A lot of them were events that cost, you know, like networking events cost 25 bucks. So I would sneak in through the back door, through the kitchen. I spoke Spanish because of my time in Latin America and Spain. And so I'd roll in and I would um, say to these guys, um, like, hey, I'd love to help you. And I'd hand over my business card and they would be like, oh yeah, the Salinger Group. I know you guys, you guys do good work. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you come in and help. And so it totally worked, man. It was a totally fake it till you make it kind of mm-hmm. situation. And um, that kept me in the game. I started making enough money to, to eat and to pay rent and to make modest payments on paying down my debt. Um, that got me to a company called Spidera, where I ended up being the general counsel and doing a lot of corp dev and biz dev stuff. Um, and it was there that finally the Google opportunity came together. Right. So, so I, I think to really understand me, you have to understand that resilience of... You know, I was deeply in debt, more than 
almost anyone can ever be in their life, let alone at 25 with nothing to show for it. Um, and, uh, with no job prospects at all. And so I even did, I found a voiceover opportunity on like Craigslist or one of those sites. So I did like a voiceover for an audio book of an old man. I, I even, I used, um, a piece of software to change my voice, uh, and, and pretend I was an old man. I, you know, I had to teach myself how to be a lawyer all of a sudden. Corporate law firms don't teach you that. You just have these forms, you fill them out. It's a game. Uh, but I suddenly had to be a lawyer. So I would go to uh, Amazon, buy books on how to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. and how to draft. I had a friend who had a copy machine at the hospital she worked at. So I'd go there late at night, and she would let me make unlimited copies. And then I would send the book back to Amazon uh, to get the refund because I couldn't actually afford These were like... $400 books sometimes. Mm. So I built a law library all out of Xeroxes and stuff. So I just, you know, I know there's, um, I know there's a lot of extreme stories of hustle these days. Like, I don't know my kids' names and stuff like that. And so this cult of hustle. But, um, you know, I think it can go way too far sometimes. Mm. But I, I don't want to apologize for when so many other people went home, I stayed. And... I didn't have mom and dad's money to fall back on. I mean, I was broke, broke, Mm -hmm. but I stayed and it was embarrassing and frustrating. And I didn't have a change of like, I didn't have an extra blazer to wear to those networking events. And I didn't have a cool job to tell everyone I had. I was, I was desperate. Um, and I tried not to let people smell the desperation on me, but those were desperate times. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, as I think back about my career, I have this motto that it may be lucky, but it's not an accident. And that's one of those times where I can absolutely, between the way I grew up and the privilege I had of parents who really invested in us, invested time and love and care, and some of those teachers and some of those opportunities I had, I can look at each of those as being fortunate and lucky and, an, and an, a moment of privilege, no doubt. But along the way, like I was the one working really hard in night school and college while some of my friends were goofing off. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the one taking risk. Um, and, you know, like all the way up through this through this experience in the end, like I was the one who stayed and tried to make it work when so many people gave up and went to Wall Street. Uh, I, you know, and that was a tough, embarrassing time. I won't compare it to anyone else's struggle. I think everybody else's struggle is different, but it was a tough time. And so, and I think what happened later, the job at Spidera, the job at Google, what happened after that, having the courage to leave Google, to start my own thing, all was a result of those years of just desperate hustle. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that didn't happen. So Chris worked his way to a position with Google and got hired to manage the server scaling operations in the company. But they weren't able to keep up with the demand and the growth of, their, uh, of the need for server space. So they needed somebody who was a business person and a lawyer who could go with, a technical, with technical capabilities, who could go identify the space, negotiate it, and paper the transactions. Um, and so I was, part, I was hired to be part of a very small team to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. And like, we had a billion-dollar budget our first year. Um, I had a, I, I actually used the Salinger Group as my front company so that when I was negotiating with people, they wouldn't know I it's was Google, Google yeah. and that Microsoft wouldn't catch on to how big we were getting because uh, they would have tried to squash us. We, mm-hmm. we were very afraid of Microsoft trying to mess us up, so we flew under the radar. 
Um, but, but along the way, I caught the eye of Eric Schmidt. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think he had said that in the first year there, somebody calculated I was, part, I was one of four guys who'd saved $400 million. Um, and so I got this award called the Founders Award, which is the mm-hmm. highest award you can get at Google. But it definitely caught the eye of Eric Schmidt. And, um, and so Eric started letting me do credit. Like, I bought one of Eric's planes for him. I, I'd never been on a private plane, but I had to negotiate the purchase of one. He's like, you'll figure it out. Uh, I would work on all kinds of incredible projects and ultimately to where by the end of my time at Google, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd been doing biz dev and M&A work and product work. Um, and, and part of that was because I was, I don't know if you knew this, but I would just walk into meetings I wasn't yeah. invited uh, I, to I, and I just heard. sit in the background and pretend I was supposed to be there. I'd walk in with some papers and like, or on the phone, you know, fake phone call and just pretend I was supposed to be there and just sit and um, totally insinuate myself into meetings I was not. And I got to know the assistants. So the assistants would give me a heads up on calendars, what meetings were taking place, you know, I was trying to figure those out, or where I could bump into Larry and Sergey. Um, I was, I was, um, I'm un- unapologetic about it these days, but I just hustled my way through it. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I bought tickets to the lottery, I guess. And then I would be in a meeting, I would hear Larry and Sergey or Eric say, like, wouldn't it be cool if we had this or we should have this? And then I would stay up all night doing that thing that I had no involvement in, that I would research it and I would send something to Eric, Larry, and Sergey literally at six in the morning after staying up all night. Um, and for a little while, I think they ignored me and then they just kind of accepted me that I was going to be in those rooms. It drove other people in the organization crazy. I definitely um, was not universally popular. I had my mm-hmm. fans and I definitely had my detractors. But it worked for me because if I didn't do that stuff, I would have been called corporate counsel or something. Um, and by the time I left, I'd given a couple hundred speeches around the world. I'd built products. I ran a, a division that we created to um, throw a wrench in the wireless carriers world. You know, I, I, like, it was what the start of what went on to become uh, Google Fiber and Google Fi and all this other yeah. kind of random stuff. Um, and, uh, and it was wild. And I'm, and I'm <laughs> grateful. You know, we went to a spectrum auction. You know, the, the FCC auctions off pieces of the wireless spectrum. We went to one of those auctions with a $4.7 billion budget because we thought it'd be great to make Verizon swallow the spectrum with uh, net neutrality rules on it. Mm-hmm. Name another company in the world where your boss gives you $4.7 billion and is like, okay, don't screw it up. It was incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I came away from that, not just with that internal lesson about how to show up and work your way into it and become part of the conversation and do that extra work at night that makes you valuable to somebody else. I mean, people always ask me, how do I break into the VC game or the startup game? And I'm like, be helpful. Just show up, being these environments, like show up to demo days, show up to meetups, show up to coding camps, and just be helpful. And if you establish a reputation for being helpful, the rest pretty much works itself out. Um, And so I just got a reputation for being helpful. Uh, Hearing about a problem, showing up to that meeting, and seeing if I could somehow help, um, you know, unscrew that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing I learned at Google was that one of the only ways to disappoint Larry and Sergey was to have too small an ambition, was to bring them too incremental or small an idea. And so these guys were just so big in their thinking. Everything was immediately global. Um, Sometimes 
extraplanetary. Um, but, but everything for them was just, uh, how can we impact billions of users? You know, mm-hmm. Eric Schmidt used to say, you can launch a bad product at, at Google and still have 10 million users because of just our distribution platform. But for Eric Lehrer and Sergey, it was always, what, what's actually going to work at scale such that it'll change the world? And that was something that I took with me when I left to become an investor because mm-hmm. Uber is one of those things, right? Where like Uber is changing the way people move around the entire planet uh, as well as now eat. Um, you know, they announced a Starbucks partnership yesterday with Uber Eats. You know, you can push a button and get Starbucks delivered to you. Uh, and so, you know, Instagram, I mean, it's wild traveling the world now and seeing people take selfies and post them to Instagram, people in other languages around the entire world. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen it um, in Ethiopia. You know, I've seen it throughout Asia. And so it's wild to see that the impact Twitter has. I, you know, it may have screwed up the last U.S. election. Um, but to think that that's become such a powerful tool. By the way, in the early days of Twitter, people at, you know, like places like... Um, you know, the, the Aspen Institute would ask me who they should bring as speakers to their event. I'm like, you should bring Evan Williams from, from Twitter. And they're like, what's Twitter? It doesn't matter. You know, like, uh, but, uh, you know, like the, think of the guys, think of the Collison brothers from Stripe. You know, they were about your age when I met them, by the way. Really? Um, I learned the importance of that ambition and got really attracted to it mm-hmm. and used it to inform the kinds of projects I was backing. So, like... You were at Google, you were kind of immersed, and I'm sure you became familiar with investing and investors and what the, like the venture capital community. What kind of sparked that interest for you? Well, so I think there's a couple different types of investors. Um, and I'll offend somebody, but I'm painting in broad strokes, and there's lots of exceptions. But I think there are those people who come out of the finance world mm-hmm. and see it as a finance exercise. Um, and I think there are people that come out of the product world who see it as a problem-solving exercise. And if you're a problem solver, you've always been a problem solver. It's just inherent to you. You fix your own stuff at home or you take it apart to see how it works in the first place. And your parents go nuts because you're like, are you going to be able to put that back together? That's the VCR. You know? like, you're just fascinated by how things work. Like you're always, you've got tools and you're taking the covers off. Um, and you know, you're always looking for a better way to achieve something. I mean, I was trying to optimize the lawn mowing. I would sketch out the lawns I mowed and try and optimize the best pattern for the least amount of time. I mean, I was obsessed with that. Um, when I started working at that construction company, I was literally coming up with new ways to achieve mm-hmm. the projects with fewer resources. And that, it impressed the owners. Believe it or not, it kind of upset the rank and file who were like, just shut up and do it the way it's done and don't make waves. So when you get to a place like Google, that kind of thinking is absolutely cherished and rewarded. And there was this attitude of like, if somebody's doing something better or fixing something, get out of their way. Um, And that's the engineer's mentality, right? And so so I think game recognizes game. You just get attracted to other people who think about the world like that. You know, so I think they're a a diverse set of backgrounds you can come from along the way. All right, we have made it to the halfway point in my conversation with Chris Saka. 
on next week's episode, how Chris quit his job at Google to pursue his venture capital career, then why he decided to leave it all behind. There will be scenes from next week's episode after the credits of the show. As always, make sure to check out the video component to this episode. You can see cool graphics, drone footage, and the actual conversation with Chris and I in a shorter, more engaging format. That link is in the description of this podcast, or you can check it out by searching www.bit.ly slash succeed YouTube. There are no caps in that URL, by the way. This show is produced by me and my mom, Lily Yerkstevich. Our theme music is by Alda, and our ad music is by Anders Nilsson. Additional music by Holly Marr. Thanks again to Skillshare for sponsoring the show. Our executive producer is Robert Barron. As well, special thanks to Lily Yerksevich, Robert Barron, Chris Saka, and an extra special thanks to Jib Jab Rose Studios. Jib Jab is a company based out of Marina Del Rey, and that is where Chris and I shot our interview. I was there for over two hours, and they were super friendly and accommodating. Thank you. All right, I'm Campbell Barron. Here are some scenes from next week's episode, the second half of the Chris Saka interview, on The Ones Who Succeed. When I left, though, the New York Times wrote an article about it that essentially boiled down to, like, why would this guy leave the greatest job in the world? And I sat at my parents' kitchen table. I was back home for the holidays, and I was crying. I was like, what did I just do? Like, I just made the biggest mistake in my life.